Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo. Jeremy Fisk and Chapin Hemingway are joining me this week to mourn the death and celebrate the life of Sir Sean Connery. The legendary actor passed away last week, and to pay our respects, we're going to discuss one of his films that actually neither Jeremy nor I had ever seen. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 1990s, The Hunt for Red October, directed by John McTiernan and also starring Alec Baldwin. Then we're going to wrap everything up with some exciting news in the streaming world, as well as some additional discussions on that front that we've been meaning to have. The most brilliant commander in the Soviet Navy. Remy has trained most of their officer corps. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. The most deadly submarine ever built. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington. Nobody would know a thing about it until it was all over. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Without all the vessels, the American Navy. His plan is a mystery. A man with your responsibilities reading about the end of the world. Apparently, he has suffered a kind of nervous breakdown in which he announced his intention to fly his missiles on the United States. He wants to help you hunt him down, kill him. Open the outer doors, firing point procedures. We sail into history. I'm going to blow him right to Mars. Ramius might be trying to defect. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in his mind? I'll give you three days to prove your theory correct. I am not field personnel. I am only an analyst. You're perfect. I'm expendable. He's defecting. You're willing to bet your life on that? From the best-selling novel by Tom Clancy. From the director of Die Hard. Give this man a chance. My orders are specific. Battle stations. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, James Earl Jones, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill. The Hunt for Red October. And this week's episode is sponsored by Aerotine International. It is a cutting-edge, high-tech firm out of the Midwest awaiting imminent patent approval on the next generation of radar detectors that have both huge military and civilian applications. I got in on the ground floor, guys, with a mere $6,000 investment at $0.10 a share, and my profits have nearly paid off my mortgage. I'd recommend that all our listeners take a look at Aerotine International and get in on the action as soon as this episode is over. So, guys, before we get going on our discussion for on the hunt for Red October, I'm curious just about your general thoughts on Sean Connery, your thoughts of him on an actor. As an actor, did you guys have any uh, uh, specific relationship with any of his movies or performances uh, over the course of uh, his career? Well, I, I would like to point out that we are actually using the sir correctly this time. Yeah. He is Sir Sean Connery. Um, that's an interesting question because for me, Sean Connery is less of an actor and more of an icon. Um, I, I never like look forward to seeing like his performances as much as his sort of um, gravitas in the film, his in presence. films he's in. Yeah, yeah his presence. Um, to me, yeah, he is. I, I share a similar sentiment. He's the definitive Bond for me. So, um, I grew up, you know, thinking he was the best Bond. I enjoyed his Bonds the most. Um, this film, uh, you know, Last Crusade, which came out the year before, The Rock, obviously, like those kind of iconic Untouchables, 
movies, you know, I, 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 I realize that I haven't seen like he had a couple. He did a couple movies with um, Hitchcock, right? Neither. Of, I don't think I've seen any of them. Um, and his older stuff that wasn't James Bond, I really haven't seen, which I'm kind of sad about. You know, like right, me too. I wish I, I wish I was more familiar, but I've, you know, yeah, just iconic in his later years. Okay, so yeah, I think it's interesting. I've seen. I've probably seen bits and pieces of most of his Bond movies, but I'm, I can't tell you for sure that I've ever seen one in its entirety. Uh, I've never been a huge James Bond follower. I, I shouldn't say I'm not a, a fan, but I've never been a big follower, especially of the older ones. Um, but, you know, I obviously knew him as the original James Bond and, and just such a perfect Bond. You know, the charm, the elegance, the gravitas, as Jeremy mentioned, and then the intensity, too, that he can that he can bring. It's It all just seems so perfect and and, you know that's why he played bond what seven times i think eight times seven or eight times and um but yeah i know him more from movies like you know the untouchables but really like the 90s movies entrapment the rock like things like that like the second the latter part of his career where he just like was came in as a supporting role or just almost in a way played himself or a version of himself, but just owned it and it worked within the movie. It was never distracting for that reason. And I, well, all those think movies I've always you, appreciated that you just listed are referenced are sort of referenced to his role as bond. Like, you know, playing Indiana Jones's father, Indiana Jones was like Lucas and Spielberg's version of bond mm-hmm. admittedly. And then, you know, like his character in, the Rock is essentially like if James Bond were <laughs> were captured, no, it, or or if Ramius was captured, <laughs> right? From Hunt for Red October, I well, thought this the he, whole movie. He he got to the states. Yeah. He he, <laughs> and then he got captured until th- they had to help him uh, get prisoners off the rock. Um, okay, so that's well, good I, to know. Can I just add, like, to that? You talk sure. about Indiana Jones. Like, I I see him. And Harrison Ford as very similar in their mm-hmm. schools of acting. Yeah. In that they're never really stretching what they can do, but they know what they can do well and they sort of stick to it and, and very always good play at it. and very good at it and play on the edges of that same thing over and over again. And I'm and I'm not saying that as a negative, but I think that's the sort of school of acting both of those guys are in. Well, and that had to have been a conscious thought and decision in casting him in the last crusade right it had to have been and thinking about who would play indiana jones's father okay so let's move on to the hunt for red october uh this movie came out in 1990 30 years ago so fitting as we continue to retrospect on these uh these movies from 20, 25, 30 years ago. We don't really seem to care anymore. As long as it's an even number or it's a, or, uh, an interval it, of five. Yeah, as long as it's, yeah, it's got to be a multiple of five. Yeah, then, then, we, can, then we can justify watching it. Um, so this movie stars Alec Baldwin, a very young Alec Baldwin, as, the, as Jack Ryan, the first screen version of Jack Ryan. And uh, Sean Connery, Scottish Sean Connery, plays a Russian named Ramius. He's a... <laughs> Uh, he's a <laughs> submarine captain uh, who has decided to defect from Russia uh, whilst sailing away in this enormous new submarine that Russia has created, this nuclear, stealth, nuclear submarine, stealth submarine. Stealth nuclear submarine that the Russians have created. 
we'll get into the plot of this movie as we discuss it, I'm sure. Uh, but I also want to point out that this movie is the follow-up by director John McTiernan to Die Hard, uh, which was 1988. Uh, John McTiernan, this I think was his third or fourth movie. I think it was his fourth movie. Um, and is sort of, in many schools of thought, considered to be one of the iconic and great action directors of the 80s and 90s. And I think that's a discussion that's worth talking uh, that's worth having as we go through as well. But I have a question for you guys, and it has to do with the stakes in this movie, which on the surface, no pun intended, is are enormous, right? This is a doomsday scenario that we're sort of uh, supposed to be watching here. Uh, Ramius takes this nuclear submarine and uh, ignores the orders that he's given and is now considered to be sort of rogue. Uh, and that's a f- certainly a concern for the, the U.S. That's a concern for the Russians. But very quickly in this movie, we learn that Jack Ryan, Alec Baldwin's Jack Ryan, has a theory that Ramius is trying to defect and actually poses no nuclear threat. We also learn that Ramius has sent a message to Russia with his plan to defect suggesting that there is no nuclear threat. And if by any chance that message isn't received or nobody believes Jack Ryan, Russia's intention is to destroy the Red October, the submarine that he's on, thus eliminating any nuclear threat. So we know all this pretty quickly. So where are the stakes in this movie? Yeah. I have to kind of agree with you, Lee. Like, once once we knew that he, <laughs> Jeff, it's so mad. <laughs> it's, it's a, what do you mean? It's a stealth ship. You, they can't so find what, it. What, what does that have they to can't do with find anything? It. But there's no nuclear so? threat. We know this. But the, the only threat is to the people on that ship, and it seems weird to me that he couldn't have just defected by hopping on a plane and get get you know going to Maine. He had to steal the he's, ship. To he's got to have something to offer them, the ship. Off, offer Ma- Maine, the the United States, which is part Maine him. is part I, of. That I understand that part. That's fair. It's not so much the 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 means in which he chooses to defect. Also, it's, he, it's he the, describes the the Red October as a stealth ship that's armed with nuclear warheads. It's a which most. That's what that's what subs are primarily now. Excuse me. So Chapin's having dinner. They describe the function of such a uh, 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 a machine is to stealthily move, be a first strike weapon, which is move without being noticed to a, in range of um, American cities where you could launch nuclear uh, missiles and strike first without any risk of retaliation. Which they which they talk about right at the very beginning of the movie. We learn that right, this but ship we know, could get. We know none of them are going to do that. We know that's right, not the and plan. That's, and that's my question. So the, there's a this movie is is full of some pretty impressive action sequences, and you know some intense moments for sure. And I feel like a lot of that has to do with the way that it's shot and just on a scene by scene basis. But in the end, and I'm going to reveal my cards a little bit here. I felt all of this movie felt a little bit light 
because that doomsday scenario, that big, big element of stakes that was supposed to be present in this movie was explained away really pretty early on in the movie. And so you lost that element. Does, you lost that element, and then all, and then you get a, basically a procedural after that. Yeah, which I think was interesting, and I think a lot Sorry, of that you aspect worked. Russia and the United States naval fleets going at each other is not big enough stakes for you. you they have there has to be nuclear stakes. But what? But they weren't really going at each other, though. It turns out that they weren't. Really, Wait, all that is, ended up. They, this is the Cold War. They're not actually fighting each other, but there are these little things, these little things happening that could have these major impacts. Right. I understand all the, the woulda, coulda, shouldas, but this movie tells us that none of those things are happening. It also tells the characters in the movie that none of those things are happening. So we don't have any reason to be concerned about that Cold War threat. So... The 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 doomsday scenario, if you read the like plot synopsis of this movie, it talks about the doomsday scenario that this that's what this movie is, a fail safe, a, a Dr. Strangelove or whatever you want to call it. Like, but that is absent because of what because of the other plot lines that this movie decides to embrace. Now, some of those plot lines really work, and I want to get into it because there's a lot I liked about this movie. And I, I, I we're off on a, the wrong foot because Chapin's already so pissed at us that we didn't like immediately talk about how much we loved this movie. But so I want to get into that stuff. But Chapin, let me hear you defend the lack of enormous stakes in this movie. That's fine. We don't. You don't need enormous stakes in every movie, especially when you think about. You know, this, this, just a little background on the book. This was Tom Clancy's breakout book. And the reason it was, it broke out partially was that Ronald Reagan had said he really enjoyed it. It was a rather small first printing. Mm-hmm. And then the president said, hey, this is kind of a good, I enjoyed reading this book. And then it blew up. You know, this was the, by the time this movie came out, I think the Cold War was over, right? 1990, Berlin Wall yeah. fell in 89. So, like, the idea of having, you know, so not everything has to be a world-ending event. You know, how, how 2010 agree, of you, Lee? No, I agree. I agree with you. But then why introduce it from the beginning? Like, because not everything the, does need the, to be. These are the stakes of the Cold War, as we know. Like, these are the, the Cold War. Were, were, and, and the reason it was cold, the word cold, is that is that the stakes were so high that going to war had such cost that people wanted to avoid it so so aggressively and so you had this you know this this battle going back and forth but everything had to be um subverted and everything had to be surreptitious and you had spies and all this stuff happened because the stakes of a, of a nuclear war were so drastic okay and so maybe there's just a distance between that and me now that I can't fully appreciate the underlying threat that this movie was trying to capture, right? The under not underlying tension that was go- just existing for these characters in this movie. And that's, that's fair, right? There can ever, all these characters can be on edge because of that looming threat. Uh, and I think they explore that in this movie, which, which works. But like I said, I found this to be, I don't want to call it a diehard light because it's not really all that comparable to Die Hard, although there are a lot of things that 
you can point to and t- realize it's the same director. But it felt a, a lot of moments felt like this. The moment that comes to mind, which was a really cool scene, is when Jack Ryan is lowered off the helicopter onto the Red October. Really well executed scene. Really good practical no, onto effects. Onto the Dallas. Yeah, onto the um, American. I'm sorry, right. Onto the Dallas, yes. Um, the American sub. And I think that's a cool scene. But it felt relatively inconsequential. Because it just didn't feel like it mattered enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I felt the same way, Lee. I mean, you can explain to me all you want about the stakes of the the Cold War, and maybe because we didn't, I didn't live through it. Um, I, you know, I didn't feel that that underlying tension of the you know, sort of the bigger picture. But yeah, I felt the, I, it was like I said, it was a bit too procedural for me, um, and I didn't believe motivations i didn't believe sean connery's motivations in this movie i had a hard time believing that he was so quick to murder in the beginning only to be sort of a a complete different character yeah a good guy um so i had trouble with that and there's a lot of i do love how they explain that away like he's meeting with all the other all the other guys and they're all just like, yeah, that guy sucked. So who cares? Yeah. He sucked anyhow. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it, for me that, that was difficult to, to keep my interest. Okay. I do want to talk about the things I liked about this movie, but I, I think a good way to get there is to find out why Chapin likes this movie. You've seen this before. Of course, you were excited to watch it. You're angry at us that we hadn't seen it. Tell yeah, us why I mean, I you really a, like this movie. I love a, a submarine movie. As do I. <laughs> and you need to do better than that, though. <laughs> um, but I, I also love the Jack Ryan character. I think Alec Baldwin is bad at this character. I'm glad he was recast with Harrison Ford to bring it full circle. Um, but uh, this, I, I, I like. And, and and I don't really see this as the beginning of Jack Ryan. I think he's large, like this movie is about Ramius. It's not about Jack Ryan, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it's really interesting. I, I it makes me kind of miss the Cold War. You know, the like it makes me of simpler times. Yeah, yeah. simpler. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You're. I mean, you're right. Like I, I, watching it this time, it did feel it did feel a little dated and. It's not quite as sophisticated as the other two Jack Ryan movies that I like. Um, but you're, of course, referring to the Amazon Prime show starring John Krasinski. Right, right. Your, <clears throat> your favorite Jack Ryan. Right. No, I mean pa- uh, Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. But, um, you know, I, I, I just think this, uh, like... I mean, in a way, this was simpler times. Like, it it was a, a period that was, you know, there was a lot of bad shit going on. Like, we, we weren't an ex- exemplary nation by any means, but we weren't at war, really. We weren't really killing a lot of people. We weren't crushing, you know, people in a developing country who, you know, have access to, you know, essentially... Toyota trucks and machine guns. This was like 
two superpowers going at each other with the latest technology. And they weren't really right. killing each other, but they had these subs. And subs, you know, subs are like another version of the space caps uh, of, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of space <laughs> yeah. or another version of, you know, it's just it's such an adventure to be in a sub. It still is. It's like, you know, it, you're... You're underwater. You're sneaking around. It's like it's 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 the high. It's so it's so cinematic. You know, it's like why why are there so many movies made about boxing? Because it's just cinematic. Like boxing isn't that popular a sport. I don't know that submarine warfare is that crucial to <laughs> you know the history of the world. But there's so many movies about it because it's it's just cinematic. There's something kind of fun and exciting and and you know, mysterious about being on a submarine. And you've got like the confines and the the tension that comes from that kind of that kind of maneuvering. I mean, these people drive these giant like the the Red October is supposed to be over six hundred feet long. They're not looking at anything. They're just right. they're literally doing it by sonar and by by the, their timers and their charts. You know, they can't see they're not navigating with their eyes. It's it's incredible. So I love that point, and it is super cinematic. Das Boot by Wolfgang Peterson is one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, that's um, yeah, and that's where and, we and that, really. Yeah, and it's just it's such it, cinematic's a great word. It's just so uh, engaging and suspenseful watching these actions play out. You know, the idea and and McTiernan does a smart thing. You know, which I'm sure he learned from Peterson, and you know, many many movies have done since. He doesn't cheat in terms of giving his characters any way to navigate other than the ways that these characters would navigate, right? With sonar and just their timers and their experience. And and I think that's brilliant. And he stays inside the sub. You know, there's some shots of these, you know, mountains and um, that they're kind of navigating through under underwater. And you see the outside. But mostly... You're sort of just watching from the inside, and you see the tension on the characters' faces and the calmness on Ramius's faces, which you know tells you everything you need to know about that character. And I think that stuff's really effective. And yeah, I think that's a totally fair reason to enjoy this movie, Chapin. I think when you leave the submarines, this movie becomes much lesser. And it doesn't matter which submarine. The Dallas is a really interesting one too, with Courtney B. Vance's character. Uh, that I think is is really well done, um, but yeah, when you get outside of the subs, it's just less impactful. It's less interesting. It's less cinematic. Sure, sure, and and I think that's okay. I I I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm not. This isn't one of my favorite movies of all time, so I'm, I think I'm just kind of overreacting for dramatic effect. But uh, that's yeah, great. Like, um, look, I I think. I mean, I'd love to talk later to you guys about the book adaptations in general. I don't know if that's on your agenda here, Lee, or not. But I think, you know, like, the idea of adapting a book like this by Clancy, I think what Tom Clancy brought to people was, like, an insight into military, whether that was real or not. Um, He, you know, he was a bit of a historian. I don't know. But I love the idea of, like, they have to get... Jack Ryan to this to the Dallas right like the sub is in the North Atlantic patrolling for Russian subs and they've got this CIA and analyst who's got to get on this sub and how do how do you do that how, how you you know you bring him to a <laughs> you bring him to a to the 
aircraft carrier and then he's got they've got to like strip down this helicopter to get him out to where the and it, you know like that stuff is just fascinating to see the way this stuff works i don't know how accurate it is or not i mean i'm gonna choose to believe that it is um but you know it's it's fun like it's fun to see the way that works and there's like a certain um you know behind the scenes revealed here that i love well, I also think the scale of all those things help. And I don't know what the budget of this movie was, but... 30 um, million. Wow, for 30 million in 1990, that's still not that much for... Because it seemed they had real, utilized real subs at points, aircraft carriers, helicopters. Effects, yeah. I mean, it it was... The scale of it was impressive, um, which also makes it that much more bizarre to me when they had to do those like few shots at the end where they're they pop their head up out of the sub and they're going down the river um and it just looks so fake yeah um but uh i think that adds to it i think um that aspect of just the you you sort of are in awe of the size of these machines that uh these characters have to then navigate um, Lee, I do have a quick question for you because I immediately thought of you at the beginning of this movie. When oh, I know you're going to ask yeah. the language. Before we get into this, yeah. when they when they switch from Russian to English. And the seventh angel poured forth his bowl into the air, and a voice cried out from heaven, saying, "It is done." So, um, let's talk about it. So, what? Uh, a man with your responsibility. What McTiernan chooses to do, evidently, I learned he uh, took the idea from the movie *Judgment at Nuremberg*. But all his Russian characters that are on the Red October at the beginning of this film are speaking in Russian with subtitles, and then. In the midst of a conversation, he zooms in, pushes in on one of the characters right up to his mouth. And mid-sentence, he switches from Russian to English. And from there on, all of the characters just speak with their regular accents in English pretty much for the duration of the movie. thought it was a great choice. thought it worked perfectly. Everybody should do it. It works. Give us a reason to understand why you're doing it. Make the change. We can suspend our disbelief, and I thought it was extremely effective. You know, if you, I, I don't, I don't know if this is the kind of movie that I that I roll my eyes at. If the entire movie is about Sean Connery playing the Russian named Ramius with his Scottish accent, if that bothers me, without this tool that he uses, without this little cheat that he uses, but I liked they use it. I thought it was smart, and it it just did what it needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Look, he's like basically, I'm gonna, I'm going to hire Sean Connery to play this role. Sean Connery is not a method actor. He's not gonna get the dialect down. He's not gonna get the right. language down. So if I'm gonna have him, most likely not even gonna try. And yeah. he's, he's not even gonna give it. I'll be surprised to finish shooting with Sean Connery. Um, where do, where does yeah. that reputation come from? Like, cause he, cause he seems like he just like doesn't give a shit. And it's sort it's, of like in more, an awesome way. Like, yeah, like I'm gonna play this. This is how I'm gonna be. And uh, and who's gonna you gonna you argue go. with me? Yeah, like 
What are they going to do? Uh, but so. yeah, I liked I liked that idea. I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, as soon as that happened, I knew that was going to, of course, come up on the podcast. One, because I talk about the accents in movies all the time, but also because that's a unique thing that we haven't really but ever isn't seen. for you, like, the issue is if they, like, ha- they use um, English language but then try to put an accent to it? Isn't that, like... I, I, mean, I have... I have more of a trouble. I have more trouble when it's like they try to put an accent to it, but not like a bad Russian accent. They just decide that they're all a British. They're just going to be all British. Oh, like, you don't like that. That's weird. I, I thought you. I, d- I thought you didn't like the um, the what I always think of the Schindler's List method, which is we're going to give them Polish accents, but they're we. But in the reality, they're speaking Polish. So what is it? See, yeah, I though I do have an it's just I guess it depends movie to movie. Like this Hunt for Red October is a PG, you know, blockbuster movie. You know, that that's not a movie that needs to be overly sophisticated. So, speaking English is the way to do it. It's it's if everybody here I think I would be bothered if they all tried a Russian accent and it didn't work. That's one thing that certainly bothers me. It's another thing that bothers me when it's just like they decide, okay, exclusively, or this is a movie that's like about Europeans. So, like, everybody just do your best European accent. And then everybody just does something sort of like British. That bothers me too, mm. where there's no like decision on what exactly they're doing. Here, there's clearly a decision. They're going to speak in Russian. So, we know that these are Russian characters. We're going to make that change. And then we're just going to let them act. And that's great. I uh, like to stay on the subject of acting, and, and we touched on it a little bit. But I'd be curious to hear from you guys as to what your thoughts on Alec Baldwin's more of his career in general, and why you don't think he could be a movie, or or why he wasn't able to become a movie star. Because Chapin, you touched on the fact that you didn't like him in this, and you're glad he was recast. But and I agree with you. But what is it about Alec Baldwin? And I think we all like him for his later stuff, but this is something about him that just misses the mark as being a movie star. Yeah. Well, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Lee. Well, I've often disliked him as a dramatic actor. I think he do, I think he's over dramatic when he tries to play dramatic roles. I think he's fantastic in comedies. 30 Rock is a, an amazing role and he's great in it. And you know, movies when he gets to be funny, I think he's he's quite good. I don't know that he's a movie star or ever was destined to be one, but I, I just think, think his dramatic roles be, I, don't work. I think they wanted think him like, to be one. Yeah, I think they wanted him like back in this in, in the early '90s to be the ne- a next movie star, and it just he but just he doesn't was, have the jobs. He was a movie star. I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe not a good actor, but. Um, I, I, I think he didn't embrace his edge. I think he found his edge in the film The Edge, which I actually like him in, not to put too fine a point on it. But um, I think he's not a like, I mean, you've seen him like freak out at stuff and you've seen him, you know, in, in his personal life. And you can tell the guy's got kind of a temper and. And he's a good looking guy, but it's just, this is just the wrong role for him. And. And I think, you know, like a movie star, 
you have to you, you we i don't know if we as like the audience find it or you know the filmmakers find it you find like something in their personality like you said about tom cruise and to some extent sean connery that is like just so attractive that they can do some version of that in every movie right like i don't think of um you know, Daniel Day-Lewis is a movie star. He's an actor. He's like the actor's right. actor, right? But like Tom Cruise and, and Harrison Ford and people like that have something innate in them that they do that is attractive to, to filmgoers. And I think part of it is known as finding that in themselves. And I think, you know, this role is a perfect example of just not playing to Baldwin's strengths. You know, like, so, like, what have you guys seen the other two Ryan movies with, with, um, with yeah, Harrison it's Ford? It's been a while, but yeah. Like, the, the whole point of that character is he's this Boy Scout. Like, he's just like the last good man in politics or in, or in the, you know, in the spy world. And like, F- Harrison Ford just like finds something in that role. Like, he is so good in this, in, in those two movies because like his, conscious his more his morality the character's morality like gets him into trouble like he's just he's not built to to be um a political actor um and and so like he he just most of the conflict in those two movies comes from him being kind of a boy scout and i just like that's not who i think of it with alec baldwin so i this is this will come as no hit something there this will come as no surprise but Scorsese found all of Baldwin's strengths and utilized them in The Departed, right? There's this arrogance, there's this edge, there's this humor, there's and this the charm. There's, too, I think. It, there's this charm, yeah. So, like, he, all of those things that you see a little bit in Jack Donaghy on 30 Rock, too, but, like, really, I just think The Departed is a perfect example, right? He kind of, do, you know, he does kind of doesn't give a shit, but also, like, you know, is, com- like, got to his point in his career for some reason so like all of these things that you see for in his character in the departed i think are are examples of the strength that baldwin has as an actor and scorsese found them for that movie whereas here everything you just said chapin like it's trying to capitalize on this golden boy you know boy scout whatever you want to call it that he just isn't and that is more of a you know that's more of a uh issue with the casting of him than it is that with his, his performance in general. I think he's fine in this movie. I, I didn't really watch it and think, um, and Alec Baldwin's hurting this movie. I don't think no, that but, was ever the issue. But this is somebody a else could have made it has, better. Yeah. Has, has spawned like over 10 books, you know, it's like a whole series. And mm-hmm. then, and this was supposed to kick that character off. And I mean, you know, it's again, it's like, it's Sean Connery's movie. And I think, had you put Harrison Ford in this role, which I think they initially wanted to do, you know, well, one, you'd have the, the, them together a year after they played father and son, but also like, that seems like too many personality, too much personality in, in one movie. I don't know. Yeah. I think it would, I would have rather watched that movie because what Harrison Ford would have been great in this movie. Yeah. What that character was missing was like, the surrogacy to the audience and that's what you needed a little bit more of to make this story more interesting and i think harrison ford would have brought that 
It all comes full circle because Harrison Ford didn't do this movie, probably felt like he should have. So he went and did K-19 The Widowmaker with Catherine mm-hmm. Bigelow with a Russian accent on a sub. Right. That's just awful Russian accent. So everything we've discussed, some way, shape, or form, it all ties back together. Um, and Two other things I want to talk about. One in particular is John McTiernan. So this was his fourth movie. Um, 1985, he did Nomads. Then Predator was 1987, followed by Die Hard, and then Hunt for Red October. Um, he only directed... That's a pretty good run. Yeah, I mean, so then Medicine Man, Last Action Hero, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Thomas Crown Affair, 13th Warrior, Rollerball, Basic in 2003 was his last movie. Apparently he's got something in pre-production, but we'll we'll see. Um, so yeah, maybe, you know, about a 15-year run, 18-year uh, run. Yeah, you know, I, Die Hard, great. Hunt for Red October, good. Thomas Crown Affair, good. Die Hard with a Vengeance, good. But like, I, I, I think... I don't know. I don't know if I buy into like the the status that he's been given as this kind of iconic eighties, nineties director, action mm. director. I mean, a lot of these, like his his like average Metascore has got to be like sub fifty on his movies. Defend him, Chapin. Well, I mean, I mean he, you he don't, did, don't he say did, Die Hard. That he, that's. What do you mean? Don't I mean, say Die Hard. Well, don't God, use his die- best movie in okay. your defense. All right, but you—how many people do we, do we have one good movie and then a bunch of okay, bad fine. ones? Okay, fine, 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 fine. Predator, amazing. Like that—that's an iconic film that 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 kicked off a series. Um, I, the, this movie, I think, is a is is a demonstration of you know containing you know a movie like Die Hard is just bullets flying the whole movie and. It's a more traditional action movie. This is a more of an espionage type of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Die Hard with a Vengeance, I think, is n- nearly as good or perhaps even better than the original Die Hard. I love that movie. Ugh, I hate that argument. It's just not. It's a it's a above average movie. I mean, am I? I mean, you you won't let me say Die Hard. So well, you but you're also you're also <laughs> now saying that. Die Hard 3 is as good if not better than the first Die Hard. Okay, That's so, asinine. Okay. So it's not better, but uh, but it's 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 so close to it's it is a, in its own right a, a great movie. And and then I'll say just like I think the Thomas Crown Affair is a really great movie too. I like um, that movie too. The other two, you know, like he got into some legal trouble. That's why he hasn't made anything for nearly 20 years. But he went to he like went to prison. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Um well there you go. <laughs> But, uh, a lot. but yeah, I mean, I think Predator and Die Hard set the tone for two very distinct types of movies that are popular going forward, you know? Okay. I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, I think he's a, he's clearly a, um, like he's, he clearly had a vision like an uh, an eye for these types of movies and he kind of paved the way for these types of movies for the next 25 years since and um 35 years since and i think that's that's admirable i just think like a lot of his movies with the exception of die hard for me are are good above average good you know but rarely great and i and i th- i think it's hard for me to get behind him as you know uh, iconic director with that with that in mind with that type of you know 
grade on his resume. But I, I understand your argument, Chapin. Sure. And like, you know, look, like you, you're you're saying he's the iconic 80s director of action, which I think is fine. But that's that's not a genre that I, I put a lot of stake in. I mean, I, I right. like those movies that we've discussed, but, you know, I think I, I don't find those movies to be particularly relevant in the like long term cinematic discussion. Yeah, that's a good point, too. Um, quickly on the, the topic of book adaptations, I did have a couple thoughts there. Um, this, of course, was adapted from Tom Clancy's novel. Chapin, you brought up something. Um, I, I want to say it was on the Little Women podcast that we did last year. Uh, in reference to the 90s version of that movie and how it was a stretch through the 90s where they were sort of just like phoning it in on these book adaptations, right? Like they just weren't putting well, a lot of effort into trying to say anything with them, right? Like they're just well, taking also, these popular books and... Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of four authors. We talked about King yesterday, or last, sorry, last podcast. Clancy, Michael Crichton, and um, John Grisham. Like these right. sort of smart, not smart, but adult books that were like essentially the Marvel movies of the late eighties and or and nineties where these people would write a book and they'd, the film rights would be sold right away and they'd make movies out of them, just kind of turn them out. Right. And, and with those, with those authors, I mean, you have the, the Jack Ryan stories, but then you also have movies like the Shawshank Redemption, Jurassic Park, the firm, you know, which are all good movies and, and some amazing movies and iconic movies. Right. But then you get like that the '90s version of Little Women. You get movies like What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Like these, just they, this feels like they're like this was a popular book. Let's shoot the let's adapt it into a screenplay and shoot the screenplay. Like they have no ideas, right? There's no vision to them. And I feel like you know those were kind of the t- the two schools, right? Like really popular authors adapted into a movie, really popular books adapted into a movie. Those were the schools through the '90s. Now we are. I feel like when you see a movie that's been adapted by a book, it's rarely a book you've heard of a, a lot of the times, right. which is really interesting. I just bought uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which I'd like to read. That's the book that Scorsese's next movie is adapted from. Um, but, like, you know, I mean, these were relatively popular books, but, like, The Social Network and and Moneyball were, you know, like – biographies right like they're they're right, not they're those aren't those yeah. aren't books that if they were written in like the early 90s that they would turn into movies exactly they're, so they're, i think they don't adapt easy so how do you guys feel about that i i love it i like i think that's i think that challenges what? screenwriters and challenges directors and we get better you movies love, as a result you love what that they're adapting kind of like less popular more, books Exactly, or le- like uh, books that are trickier to adapt. Yeah, well, I think that's really interesting. I, I, I was sort of ruining the fact that we aren't making movies like this anymore. Like we're not re- like I guess, I guess like they recently adapted um, it again, but like I can't right. think of. Yeah, I, but I I, to be honest, that. I don't know who the equivalent of these authors are now. I mean, I know John Grisham is still publishing work, but like, and Stephen King, but. Um, yeah, who's who's the big name? Right. Like, Dan, like Dan Brown was for a, for yeah, a that's blank. A good, right? Dan, oh, that's that, a good. Yeah, example. That's a good. That's a good one. Um, yeah. That, that's all to say, just that I I I I I hesitate to call these movies smart 
because I know like the books are kind of like beach reads, you know, they're not, they're right. not like great novels or anything, but, but I think they are adapted into smart movies. Um, and, but, and so I kind of, I, I do, I do kind of miss them. I miss the, the Michael Crichton adaptations. I used to read like when I was in the nineties, when I was young, I would read all those Crichton books and I was, you know, you based on when they were adapted and you know they see they eventually got like worse and worse and i think the last one was that awful time travel movie with paul walker that was just horrible i forget timeline well there's something but that's the thing about the beach read books right like you're reading those and you're kind of like god who would play this person i can't wait to see this movie right (laughs) and they end up being like laundry movies Right, so, like the movies that you can just have on and wa- re- are rewatchable and aren't necessarily movies that y- you know you sit down and and study and critique, but they're popcorn movies and just like they were beach reads. I guess that's the the, the equivalence, and and that's why they worked for a good period of time. I think we want to be challenged a little bit more, which is why we like to see things adapted for more challenging material. Um, all right. You guys got anything else there or should we move on? Well, I, I was going to say, like, I think also like nowadays or at least maybe the up to the last few years, a, a lot of those authors were teen novelists. Like you, like the John Green okay, so, of the world. And well, like the, the, the young adult books, the young adult, so, yeah, the young so adult novels, Harry Potter and Hunger Games and things like that. Those obviously oh, yeah, exactly. are big, Twilight, adapt- big adaptations. Games. Yeah. Um, okay, so guys, uh, in the streaming world, we have enormous news—the biggest news of the weekend. Well, this was going to be my up. this was going to be my bit. So okay, I wanted to say that I think that we have a small listenership. The studio heads are all listening because we went on off on our was that the Crouching Tiger podcast where we talked so. where we were weren't quite understanding why things weren't moving in the streaming world, and now they are. So you're welcome, Hollywood. So if you watch the news at all this weekend, yesterday in particular, it was on every news station. There were people beeping, <laughs> honking their horns, waving flags, going in the streets. Everyone was so excited. And I cannot blame them because on December 15th, Tenet is coming I don't know how they got those Tenet flags so quickly. Yeah. I know. It was that kind was of amazing. Amazing. Um, so I was ex- as excited as everybody about this, of course. Um immediately text you guys i felt i felt really important breaking the news um and yeah so we're gonna have tenet and mank podcasts coming to you in december which we're really excited about i told my wife that she needs to leave with my son that evening and sleep at my parents or my sister's house because i need to watch tenet in the most immersive way possible and i don't want to wake anybody up or hear any complaints so um Guys, give me your excitement level. Give me your excitement levels. I'm pumped, and I'm especially pumped because this was really annoying me. I mean, I was gonna, I was even thinking of trying to rent a theater to try to see Tenet. Yeah, I was thinking Um, about that too. But I think this is the smart. I think, like Lee, you made a great point uh, when we discussed. Are we gonna talk more about streaming now or? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. I want to have those discussions that you'd been planning on having. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that like the. The, um, the 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 steps that that Warner Brothers has taken with Tenet are are just stupid. Like releasing the movie was dumb. It didn't it didn't make any money. I mean, it did very poorly. 
Um, and there was some debate as to like whether it would come out at all on video. Like, I mean, I thought like maybe they'll re-release it when this all is over and like what's going to happen. And obviously like they just made a huge mistake. Um, but what I think they did do right was, was release the film. Well, one within like before the calendar year is over, but also like in the, in the holiday season. So, you know, we can still have a discussion about it on the podcast in, in perhaps in consideration for fixies. Um, and I think that's, and that's why they did it. They did that. I, no one was like, you know, uh, listen, mate, I really want that to be considered on the fixies. So I'm going to put it out for you on December 15th. Oh, thank you. Um, and so like, I don't know if that's the best business decision. You know, we'll talk a little bit about HBO max and all the streaming services, but you know, they're, we're going to be able to rent it. We're going to be able to buy it, et cetera. I think I, I, I have a feeling that Nolan movies tend to do, pretty well on video people collect them etc so i it, it makes sense to me i'm glad they're doing it i think i'm, I'm really really excited because it, it's about a month um and then we can really review it which is great um what was that you my, called my watch, watch was just like just exploded <laughs> you're so excited it yeah so <laughs> calm down your, your, your heart's about to explode <laughs> that's for other reasons uh, i'm kind of surprised you're as excited as you are chapin to be honest um because watching Tenet at your home, I feel like is not something. It's not ideal. It's well, maybe ideal your maybe movie. your home, but my home with the with the sound and the and the screen. No, I get it. I get what you're saying, but like, <laughs> but it is. It's better than not seeing it. <laughs> it's better Correct. than not seeing it at all. But you're sort of a purist when it comes to Nolan and watching Nolan in the theater. And having that theater experience. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you're definitely right. Like, I mean, I, but I guess I just don't. So we, we can start the streaming discussion and, I, and I'm going to start off with some bad news, which is that, you know, I listen to other podcasts that aren't film related, believe it or not. And I think this, I, this lockdown, you know, like social distancing, we're not going to be, we're not, we probably aren't going to be going to movies next year is, is my guess. Like yeah. theaters are probably not going to be open in 2021. That seems to be, seems to be clear. And so with that said, I just, I think there's a lot to discuss based, you know, what we have to talk about now with, with what's happened in the streaming world. But, you know, as far as Tenet goes, which was my most anticipated movie of this year, I mean, I just want to see it. Like I, I, and, and it's come out and like, it, you've got this weird situation where some of the world has seen it. Like a lot of press have seen it. A lot of you know people in you know in Europe have seen it, but we haven't seen it, and most of the public in the United States hasn't seen it. And so, well, they're waiting know, for our endorsement too. Like that's what's frustrating for everybody else. Right, right, right. I mean, most people look to us to see. I mean, obviously the studio heads are listening, so most <laughs> you know we we are you know, people are listening to us with bated breath to figure out what we have to say about it. But yeah, like I I, I mean, look. What's disappointing to me overall about the theatrical experience in general is that I can't see Tenet the way Nolan wants me to see it, which is in IMAX. There's no way to see an IMAX movie right. on the uh, where I'm located in the country. I don't know if you guys have one out there, but like digital IMAX doesn't count. I'm talking about film IMAX. There's 65 millimeter out here, which is awesome. 70 millimeter, which is cool, but you know, like there's just no way to see it the way you know. There's only a few things, which is which I think we can discuss on the Nolan podcast, but it's, it's just, a, it's a, it's a little bit annoying to have Nolan have this like, you know, very 
erudite, sophisticated way of making movies that only, you know, people who live in LA and New York can see. Like, where else can you see film IMAX? I don't know. Like, but. Uh, well, let's look at the other side of this same coin. So we're excited to see Tenet. Obviously, we want to see the movie. I mean, ultimately, bottom line, we want to see the movie. It's going to be available. But what happens to theaters? It's, you know, you're saying uh, that I don't know. It, next year we're not going to go to theaters. I mean, like, I, what, I, I hope what's going to happen to I, that experience? I really hope I'm wrong. I mean, we're um, we're we've had this discussion before, right? Look, and yeah, but and it's look, different now. It is it's, right, it's but more I, my it is and but i think those are two separate discussions right i think what chapin is saying and what i believe too is that the desire to go to the theater is not going away because of streaming right yes, yes. so if theaters can survive this pandemic right being where they are not getting attendance for nearly 2 years if that's the case people will go back to them when they, they can will. They will. And, I, I, and I, I totally agree with that. And because if if this has taught us nothing, it's that we want to go back to the movie theater. It's not just to see Tenant, but that because we like to go to the movie theater. We like that experience, that it is not the same at home, no matter how hard we try. Now, what I think the studios need to start to learn and what I think they are slowly learning is that there are movies that we kind of it's a coin flip. Right. I could see that in the theater. I could see that at home. I really don't care. It doesn't impact me one way or the other. So send it to me at home and right I but think, i mean jeremy's point is like what what are they going to do financially so that's a that i had a, i heard another um point on that that i thought was really interesting and this is a little bit more of a long-term viewpoint but um are movies productions going to start getting cheaper and by that i mean are they going to make less expensive movies like I know the. Well, I know there are additional costs, Jeremy, and you can talk about this. Just COVID related and things that they have to pay for. But are are big budget movies going to be? Are we going to see fewer big budget movies because the returns are not as guaranteed? I, it's hard to tell. I mean, I don't think so because I. I mean, I think like streaming services like Netflix just have so much money. And since they're on a subscription base, that money's not going anywhere that they'll still make a handful of movies every year that are, are giant hundred million dollar movies. I, I, I think they will. But then the question becomes, what does the, what is the theater experience? So like, is it all, does that just become all Marvel and superhero movies and, the the ones they're guaranteed to make right. money off of like does it turn into that and you just don't go and see the smaller films in theaters i you know i, I was reading an article the other day um and spielberg and lucas were talking about how the theaters are might go under they'll probably uh you know <clears throat> start up again but they'll be completely different experiences they'll be it'll be like go you know going to broadway or something you know you spend right. 60 dollars to go yeah. to the movies and, that's something Cam- uh, james cameron has been pushing for a while like making the theatrical experience a lot more expensive than it already is right so that that's one way that it may go i don't know like it's it's well, tough I think there's something interesting to discuss here in that. I mean, I'd like to get to the streaming news that we have, but, but, you know, in the 
in the mid aughts, you had this big migration from celluloid to digital. And that was, um, you know, both in the, in the making of movies, movies were filmed digitally, but also they, there was a huge incentive to dis, uh, distribute and exhibit movies digitally, which now almost every movie you'll see is a digital print. Um, but of course that would, that, that meant that movies, you know, the, the money that was going to be saved. So basically if to make a film print costs about two grand, right? So if you put that out around the, around the world, you need to make thousands, maybe tens of thousands of prints. So that's a huge, huge expense for the studios. Uh, tens of millions of dollars, right? So there was an advantage to the studios to having digital uh, exhibitions. Like we'll just send you a file that's two hundred bucks tops. It's a, it was you know, but the 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 theaters had to update, upgrade their systems in order to make that work. They had they had to pay for the digital upgrades in order to to switch from film to to digital. So somehow, I don't know the details of it, but somehow they figured out how to have some kind of profit sharing so that the theaters got some of that money, got some Mm -hmm. of the savings. There was some way to make, because it was, you know, they didn't really benefit from it. It was really the studios that would do it. So I think they're going to need something like that. Whatever the equivalent of that is. Yeah. Right. And I don't think holding on to movies is the way to do it because it's just going to put companies like Disney and the studios in a, in a bind. So here's, here's something what I think is really interesting. So we talked about, um, you know, shortly after we did our podcast about streaming and how, you know, these studios weren't really adapting to it. All this news came out about how they were doing, they were doing it. So, you know, obviously some important people are listening to our podcast so, but what I th- one of the more interesting things I think about that is that MGM was trying to sell the new Bond movie, No Time to Die, but they were trying to sell it for six hundred million dollars. Now, this is where I think the economics of streaming and the economics of theatrically distributed movies intersect in a way that just doesn't work, right? Because MGM, understandably, wanted to you know make an enormous profit. Uh, they wanted the, to make a, a similar the previous profit. Bond movie made eight hundred or something, right? I think right. I read that. Right, and they 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 spent two hundred fifty million making it, and they'd already spent fifty promoting it for nothing. You know, the, the fifty million that's just down the drain because they pr- were promoting it for an April release date. And so now they want they want to get paid for the cost of the movie and also any profit they would make on it. And I think that's just where the economics just don't make sense for a company like. Apple or a company like Netflix, because Netflix doesn't look at a movie like a single movie bringing them in that kind of profit. It's just, I don't think something like that's going to work. They're happy to spend half of that on a movie. Maybe, maybe they'd pay, but they'd buy bond for a little more than they paid than MGM paid to make it. I just don't think that's going to work, but you've seen, for example, like, did you guys know that there's a sequel to coming to America? Evidently there is. Yeah. Um, and that. Paramount sold it to Amazon for $125 million. Uh, Warner brothers but, and put that's out what's crazy. Like if you're, if you're weighing, sorry to interrupt you, but like if you're, if no, you're no. putting, if you're putting everything on a scale in terms of like what people are anticipating, if, if 125 million buys coming to America part two, then 600 million is what, no time to die costs. That makes sense, right? Like that's 
Yeah, I mean, I'd, I think what it, I think three times as many people want to see No Time to Die than want to see Coming to America Part Two. So yeah, but not six. But it's six. It's more like six times or four times. Right. Okay. hundred. Yeah, I was thinking two hundred million. But anyway, yeah. So like four times, right? Four, right. Four and a half. Four and a half times as many people. But I still think that's true. And but your point is right, and that's where the economics of Netflix streaming is just kind of confusing, right? Like it's, it's. Well, I, I did some research. I spoke to a friend of mine who used to work at Netflix, and evidently, at least back you know ten years ago, Netflix figured out through their algorithms, which I'm sure are telling us a lot of information, telling them a lot of information now that they people who watch the more hours you watch of Netflix, the more likely you are to stay subscribed, right? That was like the basic economic principle that they, and I, so I would wager that they've, that they have um, grown and they've adapted and they've, 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 they've have other goals now, but you know, that's what makes having friends so appealing because you just keep watching. And that's why they have the keep watching right. thing is that is, is if you just keep people watching, they'll, they, they won't get rid of the subscription. Okay. So, but that, well, that hold, suggests hold that like, Basically, right now, Netflix is at the point where getting more subscribers is not as important to them as keeping their subscribers, I would think, because they've gotten so many subscribers. I I did the math on this yesterday. I looked up how many subscribers Netflix has and then, um, you know, multiplied that by the monthly subscription. And, like, they make, like, a billion dollars a month. At least. So, at least. So, a billion dollars a month forever, essentially – it, they can afford to pay six hundred million dollars for sure. and, a and, bond movie. And based on what well, I've been reading, and it's it's sporadic, but like it's possible that 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 could still happen. That Netflix may still be interested, but that's besides the point. Now it's like, is is their business plan to buy these things to avoid losing subscribers? Are like are they? No, I think see, so. that's, that's the thing. Is I don't that doesn't think, make sense. Like I don't think having no time to die, at least on the model I just described keeps you from losing subscribers. I also don't think it's going to help sign up a bunch of people. I don't think a lot of people are going to go, well, we suddenly need to get Netflix to watch No Time to yeah, Die. Yeah, they'll get a seven-day free trial and then watch it. And, like, I, I get it. Maybe I, the free trials are there for a reason, right? Most people won't cancel it. And, yeah, I, I, I have a hard time understanding the uh, Netflix's r- thought process behind spending so much money to buy content, right? Even sometimes them to amount of money they spend on content that I think is sometimes a little bit of a head scratcher. And I, Amazon buys something, puts it on Prime. You know, Amazon buys No Time to Die. Let's say that, for example, which they haven't been in the discussion to do it. But let's say they buy it, right? Well, they bought Coming to, Coming to America. Right. So they buy that, okay? And you have to subscribe to Amazon Prime to do it. Now they have people on their Prime membership with all of these other things, music, shopping, everything, right? right? That, that's a that's totally a, different economic, it, right? And that's so, model, and that's yeah. so much easier to understand why they will spend that much money on it. Where Netflix has one goal: to stream content. They don't sell anything else. So to spend that much money without the goal of adding subscribers, really just trying to avoid losing subscribers, that that seems like a hard thing to wrap my head around. No, I I, I agree, but I I think. And that's why I think this No Time to Die doesn't make sense, especially at that price. But, you know, the Irishman does, right? Because if you, they, I, I like, I, 
if if Netflix came to me and said we did the math and we made in some bizarre way we we made the Irishman profitable for us, I wouldn't believe it. I don't care what you say. I don't. I think there <laughs> right. there is no way that that movie was profitable for them. But it's part of building this bigger brand, which is we are this prestige studio that has Oscar movies every year now, and we let filmmakers do whatever they want, and we give them a lot of money to do it. I think well, that's that's another long, thing. Yeah, you made a point a long time ago, Chapin, about HBO and how Game of Thrones allows them to make shows like Barry, right? Or, so, right. or whatever. I don't remember the show that you mentioned, but or like Curb Your Enthusiasm or something, right? And and so it's a little bit of that mentality, right? So like the Irishman, you know, costs them a lot of money and draws people in, but they make their money because people stay and watch the office a hundred times over and over again or whatever. Right. Right. So, but it's still the amount of money they spend. And I, I, I guess Jeremy's math tells the story, right? That X amount of subscribers times 15 bucks a month, or whatever billion dollars a month, you can do whatever you want. So well, um, plenty of, plenty of companies make more than that a month. I mean, there's still a lot just, of overhead, but it's just, um, it's interesting to figure out how they can grow. Yeah. I, look, I think, I don't think they want to anymore. I mean, they want to, but I don't think they need to. If you're taking I them, I think kind it's a, of, it's a different that kind of money every else, single. Yeah. You, you, you got to think that people when they subscribe, they're subscribing for their basically the, their lifetime is what they're hoping for. Right. So as long as you don't lose them, you're going to be very profitable in the end. And this is to keep them. You know, you 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 get movies. Um, you get movie stars, which is another big change. You know, you talk about I mean, the Irishman, or you talk about the movie I'm working on. I mean, there's now movie stars are flocking to these streaming sites, and there's n- nobody's batting an eye about it. I, I also think there is, and I, I know I mentioned this before, but I, I, I really just there the appeal of the of this to filmmakers. Like, I get. And I kind of admire it in a way. I get the theatrical experience is important to people, but I'm like, I'm even surprised that that Fincher isn't. I assume is insisting on releasing Mank into movie theaters. Maybe that was just like a pre-COVID. We needed to we need to do that to to, to qualify for Oscars thing. But like, just just removing the box office from the discussion. I mean, look at where. Tenet is for Nolan right now. Evidently some book came out about Nolan and he, he was in the press because in some interview he did for the book, he had to defend the lackluster performance of Tenet. Now, now obviously that has a lot to do with COVID. These are extenuating circumstances, but imagine if he just hadn't put that movie out. He had just like acquiesced to what I'm sure Warner Brothers were asking him to do. Just like, let us delay it or let us put it out digitally. He'd still have all his capital. Yep. But not even that, like he wouldn't have to worry about explaining why his movie bombed like, right, you know, like and and like just take it, take the other side. The the if if the Irishman came out and it was uh, Scorsese's most successful movie of all time, it would have lost money, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, so right. (laughs) So why? Why do filmmakers not understand the appeal of that? Like, what, if you put a movie on Netflix, like you, you don't have to worry about the way your movie performs at the box office anymore. It's just, it's no longer a discussion. Whether your movie was a hit or not is not a discussion anymore. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, but we're also talking about 
Scorsese and Nolan where at this point, it really doesn't matter if their movies are hits. Now, I think the Nolan thing is an interesting discussion. I'm not sure we even have time to have it right now about, you know, what would have been or should have been with Tenet. But Nolan's going to get however much money he wants for his next one anyway, right? In, in fact, he'll, he might get more because the anticipation for a theatrical release of a Nolan movie f- four years from now or whatever it is is, is going to be astronomical. Maybe, uh, but I, don't, I, I think this impacts his brand negatively. I, I agree. And again, I think that's a, another conversation. I don't, we're, we're running over on time and might not be able to get that. We'll tease it for the next episode. You got anything else, guys? No, um, the Disney is releasing the big Pixar movie on Disney Plus without having people paying for it, so you'll just get to watch it. I think it's smart right around the holidays. Uh, the Witches, which is Robert Zemeckis' movie that I would imagine would have bombed had it been released in theaters, came out on well, HBO Max. Now it's cloaked in some controversy. So, Oh, well. yeah, what happened? Uh, I guess there's some... I have not seen the movie. I don't know what it's referencing, but there's some... Something that it uh, turned out to be insulting towards people with disabilities that a lot of apologies had to come out for. Um, oh. So uh, if you've seen the movie and you know what happened exactly, let us know at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. Uh, next week, guys, I think we're going to do a just effing watch it, right? The Tokyo oh. Story. Yeah, Ozu. Uh, I would recommend that everybody Ozu. check that movie out, just effing watch it along with us. Uh, we're going to discuss that on the next pod. Uh, we're just kind of biding our time here until we get some new releases, which are coming. Uh, within the next month and a half, we will have at least two new movies in Mank and Tenet. I mean, it's quite um, possible those will be back-to-back, right? Oh, my God. I th- uh, it's the 4th and the 15th, so it's possible, depending on what December looks like for us. Yeah. Um, I don't know if people will be able to handle the back-to-back. We might have to slip in a boring one just for <laughs> to let people yeah. breathe, you know? Um, Our Chapin's watch is going to explode. All right. Thank you very much for listening. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.